Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Arwain aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 4, Project Lawful and Their Oblivious Boyfriend. Episode 105. She carries on through hash 4 and hash 5, and then sets forth the law in hash 6 that it is impossible to coherently expect to convince yourself of anything. P, H1, E, asterisk, P, E, plus P, H1, tilde E, asterisk, P, E, E, equal sign P, H1, and amp, E, plus P, H1 and amp, tilde E, equal sign P, H1. For every expectation of evidence, there is an equal and opposite expectation of counter-evidence. This is the more precise principle above the injunction of hash 3 against cheating. It tells you a very exact balance that must hold within yourself, and if it is not there, you are cheating. You cannot expect to be persuaded, on net, in a direction. If you suspect that in the conspiracy world, Pilar didn't really copy invisibility off Savar. Not a great example. The conspiracy probably thought of that. But you could check her spellbook and think, if there's no invisibility, that's a huge update towards conspiracy. But then, if there is an invisibility spell, that must be a huge update towards ordinary. Or alternatively, if you try to say that it's only a small update towards ordinary, you must think there's only a small chance of seeing no invisibility and making the large update to counterbalance the large chance of seeing invisibility and making the small update. Anytime you go eagerly looking for something you can observe, expecting it to convince you of something, you must necessarily be doing something incoherent and wrong. Which, of course, people from Galarian have been running around expecting all the time. Asmodia's pretty sure she's supposed to leave this part out of the non-keeper lecture. No, that would go in the standard curriculum. Okay then. Including if she points out that any time you previously went into some sort of question, expecting yourself to see something that super persuaded you about theory one being true, and then you ended up super persuaded of theory one, you were clearly being incoherent going in. So probably whatever you ended up persuaded about was wrong? Yes, though Keltham would not say that the conclusion you reached is probably wrong. Maybe you expected to end up persuaded that the sun would still be lit the next day, that doesn't mean the sun goes out. The saying out of Dathilan is, reversed stupidity is not intelligence. To reliably be wrong about yes or no questions 99% of the time, you'd need sufficiently good evidence and well-processed information that you could be right 99% of the time just by flipping the answers. So if you look back and notice you were persuaded of something by garbage reasoning, you just undo the update from that. You don't conclude that you now have positive knowledge pointing strongly in the opposite direction. Asmodia feels a sudden nervous worry that the average Doth Ilani, in terms of what sort of mental caution they aspire to, and how hard they are on themselves about it, may in fact be pretty well into and maybe past what she and her fellow Galarianites were visualizing when Keltham kept talking about keepers. Asmodia informs Keltham that she's making a judgment call that her fellow Galarianites not trying to be keepers should maybe not be told about that stuff for another few days until they get a chance to take in the base principles of Hash 6. Because they've got a huge backlog of stuff they've convinced themselves of for bad reasons? What if they've ever read a book written in Galarian and believed anything inside it? Right. 
Okay, sure. First, give them a chance to master some of the basic principles and applications before pointing them in the direction of any bulk-scale mental house cleaning. And on to hash seven. You can expect to end up persuaded of the truth, right? While not knowing what it is. Like you can do a test thinking this test will reveal. Asmodeus's will, the truth, and that's not being incoherent? Asks Meritzel, who has been mostly quiet as she tries to absorb this. Abigail's chosen can't be any worse than Nethys's or Caden Kalian's. Correct. You can calculate that. In fact, unless I'm missing something. Asmodeus scribbles on the wall a bit. Let's say that you're not sure whether somebody is a cleric or a wizard. Clerics wear red with black and gold trim with 90% probability, and anything else with 10% probability. Wizards wear red with black and gold trim with 20% probability, and anything else with 80% probability. And somebody starts out five times as likely to be at least a first circle wizard than at least a first circle cleric, which sounds vaguely right to Asmodia. Then, supposing the one-sixth case where somebody is a cleric, after you observe what they're wearing, you expect with 90% probability to conclude that they're one-fifth asterisk, nine-halves equal sign, nine-tenths equal sign, 0.9, times as likely to be a cleric as a wizard, and with 10% probability to conclude that they're one-fifth asterisk, one-eighth equal sign, one-fortieth equal sign, 0.02, five times as likely to be a cleric as a wizard. Supposing the five-sixths case where somebody is a wizard, you expect with 80% probability that you conclude that they're 40 times as likely to be a wizard as a cleric, and with 20% probability that you conclude they're 0.9 times as likely to be a cleric as a wizard. So if you close your eyes and don't look at their clothes, you think that you've got a five-sixths chance of losing, about a quarter of a factor of two and a one-sixth chance of losing. About two and a half factors of two, so on average, you lose. A tad more than half a factor of two? Three-fifths of a two? And if you do look, uh... It's basically going to work out to, she's approximating here, one-six of one factor of two, plus one-sixty of five and a half factors of two. So maybe a tenth of a factor of two plus five slash six thus of 20% of one factor of two. So one six of a factor of two plus five slash six this of 80% of basically not any factors of two, which all works out to one six plus one six plus one ten or one three plus one ten, so about 43% of a two. Roughly. But less than half of a two. There's obviously going to be some sort of theorem saying that you always do better by seeing more stuff. In fact, this is so obvious that Asmodia doesn't really want to slow down and figure out how to prove it. Not exactly. The theorem says that you can't coherently expect to do worse on average by making more observations. You never expect to lose more factors of two in total expectation. Or on average. You might get unlucky and lose some in a particular case. And if you're wrong about what the evidence means, if you're wrong about the factors, preach, evidence, hypothesis, you can see what's really there and update away from reality as a result, because you didn't correctly model the entanglement between evidence and reality. You just can't coherently expect that to happen to you. Anytime you're like, oh no, I should not look there, that will probably lead me further away from the truth. You are doing something very strange and wrong, and in particular you actually believe one thing, 
but believe you believe another, like you actually know, on some level or in some part of you, that really clerics wear red and wizards don't. But you think you believe, maybe because you remember reading it in a book, that wizards wear red and clerics don't. And you expect about yourself that if you check their clothing, you'll do a calculation based on what you read in the book. So one slice through you, the part that really knows how things work, expects the verbal calculations part of you to arrive at the wrong answer. What you do in this case, obviously, is say, wait, what? And figure out what you actually expect. Reconcile that whole bizarre thing where you actually believe one thing, but believe you believe another. And then go look. There's a whole separate skill and art form about that, which I'll maybe get to in a few days, if nothing slows me down. Keeper only. No. This is eight-year-old stuff, and the rest of it's not going to make sense otherwise. Asmodia. I am worried that I have given you the wrong impression about exactly which forms of reasoning are dangerous. That stuff is not. Keeper only for at least the next several days? For somebody who believed about herself that she didn't want to try to be a keeper, you sure are trying to keep things. But fine. I can probably find material a few days out that doesn't require people to distinguish meta-levels of self-modeling or access the subjective difference between endorsement and anticipation. What am I doing wrong if I think, that person over there has a splendor of 30, if I talk to her I'm definitely going to end up believing whatever she says, even knowing that if I talk to her I'll believe whatever she says. I mean, in practice, what you're doing wrong is that you shouldn't talk to her, but, um, I'm not sure how to put this. Being a Doth Ilani, I mean an Ilani, maybe I should just say, the closer you come to a keeper, or an ideal agent, the better you are at law, the more that somebody with high splendor can't convince you of which province the assassin came from, any more than they can convince you of, um, one plus two equals five. Or the more math you know, the harder it is to convince you of that. Back in Ostenso, you'd have had an easier time convincing me that one plus two equals five in some other plane of existence, because I wouldn't know anything about the law of validity or what it really means that 1 plus 2 equals 3. I'd have read that book arguing that the assassin of the prefect of Tandak came on a ship from White March, and maybe been suspicious but not really have been able to say what was wrong. So somebody with high splendor could have convinced me of that, and now they couldn't. Or at least it'd take a higher splendor. Or to downgrade the proverb's profoundness a few steps, your strength in the way is the degree to which it takes a higher splendor to convince you of false things, and a lower splendor to convince you of true things. Meritzel looks like she actually thinks that's maybe more profound than the original version. I should also note that to whatever extent an augmented splendor of 30 does not actually act as irresistible direct mind control, and you get any chance to think about things, the obvious reconciliation is to try to decide in advance how incredibly persuasive of an argument should I expect to hear from somebody with Splendor 30 if they are trying to convince me of a true thing, compared to how likely I am to hear that level of persuasiveness if they're trying to convince me of a false thing? And then if you really expect that your predictions there are correct, and not just way underestimating how persuasive they'll sound for false things, and you think you'll actually get the chance to implement that rule instead of them just effectively mind-controlling you, then you could try to update off that conversation. I mean, in practice, to first order, the answer is just not to talk to them if you think they're liable to deploy irresistible splendor on convincing you of false things. 
to second order. If you've got to talk to them anyways, go find a lawful entity with Splendor 30 and pay them to spend a few days arguing true and false things to you until you're correctly calibrated on what it sounds like to hear a true versus false argument at Splendor 30. And if it turns out you can't learn that, go back to the first order, nope. I will keep that in mind if I ever need to talk to the Demon Lord Nocticula or something, says Meritzel very seriously. Okay, I'm sorry, but we all work on Project Lawful here, and now that you've raised this topic, I am going to need the one-paragraph explanation just in case it somehow comes up, even if you might otherwise think that was improbable. Nocticula is an extremely powerful, not-quite-a-god entity in the Abyss, and both has absurdly high splendor and is the kind of person who'd use it to talk people into false things because she'd think it was funny. I really can't think how it had come up. Maybe she'll object when we close the world wound? One of the candidate hires that Cheliax is supposed to send him, being Nocticula in disguise, is not very much more improbable than other things that have happened to him recently. But, okay, there's been a reassuringly low hit rate when he tries to guess that sort of thing specifically, and in advance. Fair enough. Probably nothing will happen there, so long as there are not in fact and in reality any tropes lurking about. Message. Meritzel. Going forwards, and subject to policy approval by Sevar, I think that in the name of prudence we start not mentioning certain things even if we would have been talking about them in an alter Cheliax that doesn't believe in tropes. Acknowledged. Can I also not ask Keltham if he thinks me mentioning it makes it more likely, and if so, if that's only mentioning to him, or mentioning to anyone? If you'd say it in alter, do it. Do you think that me mentioning things makes them more likely? Mentioning them to you, or mentioning them at all? That's a legitimately fascinating question in trope mechanics. Suppose that the basic mechanism of the tropes is that something else looks over universes that would exist anyways, and drops Keltham in a world where, given the way Keltham predictably acts, things that resemble trope patterns will happen around him. It seems incredibly likely that this happened, at least with my being dropped on the world wound someplace, I'd predictably run out of the cold, into a building where Carissa would be the first person I found who could talk to me. It happened at least with my dropping into a universe with masochists in it, and one where my knowledge would be incredibly valuable, falling in the right margin between being obsolete and being too advanced for anyone there to understand. The question is whether universe selection happened with anything else than very basic and initial things like that. It could be, for example, that the forces that selected my landing universe were also looking around for a world where Pilar delivers snacks. That they looked over a world with a Carissa with no Pilar and were like, not good enough, needs more Pilar, next universe, please. Or it could be that those forces dropped me wherever with a Carissa, but it very naturally happens, without that needing to be further specified. That if you get a weird thing like me, some nearby gods look around, and one of those gods is Caden Kaelian, and Caden's like, well, this project needs snacks, and then that happens. If there's a lot of tropes, a lot of selection, running rampant about, or if the tropes are things that can continue to steer actively, though active steering is very much not what the answer would be in a Dathilani story, then we get into the realm of questions about, if Meritzel talks about Nocticula, does that imply Nocticula is more likely to show up? Can Meritzel make Nocticula show up? Does it only apply from Keltham's perspective, or also Carissa's, or even Gregoria's? 
it could be that the tropes operate primarily on whether Nocticula shows up at all, and then have a secondary effect of Meritzel happening to mention her. Meritzel happening to mention Nocticula, you might think, is then not something that makes Nocticula show up. Rather, because Nocticula is going to show up, Meritzel happens to mention her. But even in this case, it doesn't mean Meritzel can't affect what happens. Maybe if Meritzel and every other researcher on the project and all the security are like, nope, we're not mentioning anybody like that to Keltham in case the tropes are real. The tropes are like, can we drop Nocticula on this story in a foreshadowed way? No, because nobody's going to mention Nocticula, and the tropes give up and we don't have to deal with an incredibly persuasive demon lord. Except now we have a new question. Is there just one Keltham that gets dropped on a single Galarian, or a fixed quantity of Kelthams? Or does every Galarian that matches Keltham to the satisfaction of the tropes get one? Because in the latter case, by being the sort of person who looks at this situation and has everybody get together to refuse to mention Nocticula, what you're doing is reducing the number of Galarions that get a Keltham at all. And if you think I'm net positive for Galarions, you super don't want to do that. In calculating this, obviously, you're not supposed to say anything like, but we obviously already have a Keltham, he's right here, and if we refuse to mention future entities like Nocticula, he'll still be here. It's too late for the tropes to take him back, because your decision exists in two places at once and has two synchronized effects. The first place is here and now. The second place is in a prediction about this world that the tropes made before dropping me here. A prediction where the tropes asked, well... What will people like Marichel decide when they think they've already got a Keltham who the tropes can't take back anymore? And if the tropes predict you won't mention any future demon lords and will make it impossible for required events to happen in a duly foreshadowed fashion, you don't get a Keltham. If you're the sort of person who thinks that the tropes can't take back a Keltham you already have, you don't get one. All this is the shard of law after utility and before coordination what we'd call the theory of logical decisions, meaning decisions that are about logical facts and identified with logical facts and which we evaluate in terms of their logical consequences. But pending knowing a lot of other stuff, I'd say that, even if tropes are everywhere, you shouldn't avoid mentioning things like Nocticula. Uh, unless demon lords actually directly notice when you talk about them, which in retrospect I should have checked before going into this whole long lecture here and I'm mostly at tropes not being that ubiquitous and not running foreshadowing in that particular way. After there was no conflict with the queen, Carissa made her afterlife arrangements just fine, and wasn't a hidden cleric, etc. And in that case, you again shouldn't refrain from telling me about demon lords. Unless, again, they directly hear when we talk about them. Do they? Meritzel attempts to recalculate that logic that Keltham just regurgitated with the additional information that there was some kind of conflict with the queen, though the details are very secret, and that Carissa has not sold her soul. The tropes do operate, but it might serve Asmodeus to accommodate them and make lots of tropey things happen, as that prediction is what caused Keltham to show up, which Asmodeus wanted. Then she remembers Alter Meritzel would just be answering the question. No, or not here, they might in the abyss. If there are entities, it's not safe to mention I haven't heard of them, which is what you'd expect, really. That's what I trusted, but wanted to verify. Orders not to mention entities like that are rescinded for now, pending policy ruling by Savar. 
Keltham, was that all Keeper only? Or does it get copied at least to Sevar? I imagine Sever wanting to know about all that, if she's involved. Good question. I'd say at least copy it to Carissa for sure. Aside from that, put it under Keeper classification until I've had time to think about potential dangerous information. Asmodia was gambling on that. If Keltham had explicitly said no, then copying it to Sevar would have required her to compartmentalize and hide that knowledge which she wouldn't know in Alter Cheliacs. But explicitly saying yes, which is what Asmodia expected, reduces the number of facts like that to keep track of. And it does rather seem like something Sevar needed to know, with or without Keltham's permission. Next up is Asmodia's lecture to the general researchers, including Carissa. It goes mostly the same, minus some of the more interesting or immediately Asmodian destructive portions. During discussion of Hash 7, Keltham will at least mention the general concept of trying to assess how much of an incredibly persuasive argument you expect to hear for true things versus false things from somebody with high splendor. It's analogous to asking how many queen coin spins you expect somebody to be able to tell you about if the coin is actually biased queen or text and was flipped 12 times. If you don't think you're calibrated on expected persuasiveness of splendor that high, or if you expect it to work out to direct mind control, don't talk to people with that much splendor, obviously. Keltham's actually kind of curious about the whole super high splendor thing. It seems analogous to something Keltham knows about from Dathilan, and which he, like almost everybody else in Dathilan, is incredibly curious about. One of the qualification tests for a fifth-rank keeper is getting put into a prison, with a single guard and the person of some average Dathilani who's otherwise expecting to go into cryonic suspension shortly after. The guard gets told not to let the keeper out, and offered a pretty substantial financial incentive. Not to do that, payable to friends or relatives or favorite charities, the guard has to solemnly affirm that they intend to resist any attempts to be persuaded to let the keeper out, that they're not planning to throw the test. The keeper is obviously forbidden to offer any considerations outside the test. They can't promise to pay even more money to the person's relatives or favorite charity than the incentive, if they're let out. The guard does have to go on listening to the keeper, talking back to them, and so on. To be a fifth-rank keeper, you have to persuade the person to let you out before they next sleep. You can go into overtime, but only by persuading the other person to go on talking to you. To be a sixth-rank keeper, you have to do it in 2.4 hours flat with somebody who isn't average, somebody smarter than Keltham, and they have to be between 30 and 40 years old. To become an eighth-rank keeper, of which there are maybe three dozen in Dathilan, you have to persuade your way through a second-rank keeper. Obviously, nobody except higher-ranked keepers ever get to find out what goes into those conversations. They don't lack for volunteers on the rare occasions where an opening comes up. Everybody else is so incredibly curious about what the keepers could possibly, possibly be saying. If you're going into cryo-suspension anyways, why wouldn't you find out? Keltham is curious about whether he could do that to, say, an INT-16 person from Galarian who'd never heard of law. But not something he's really got the spare time to test right now. It might take less time, though, for somebody to try incredibly high splendor on him to see if that works, like, at all, if that's safe and Asmodeus approved. Peranza remembers to be appropriately wide-eyed and fascinated by this civilization fact. It doesn't take much doing. Carissa is so incredibly, incredibly curious now. 
She would literally torture several people to death for this information, if that were a way one could get it. That does sound like really high splendor. You could put in a request for someone to do that to you. Okay, I mostly want you to do that because I'm incredibly curious, not because I'm sure it's a good idea. I'm not sure at all it's a good idea, Gregoria says. What if while they were at it, they also convinced Keltham to go run off and be chaotic good or something? I know it's not mind control, or uh, that the keepers claim it's not, but that doesn't mean it's going to be distinguishable from mind control. Presumably the person with incredibly high splendor also has any common sense, or so I'd hope. Actually, I guess that can't be taken for granted. A keeper candidate would have enough common sense not to, in the process, persuade the guard to not go into cryosuspension and instead become a master criminal bent on the destruction of all civilization. Maybe somebody with high splendor doesn't. Merrixel wants a call from Carissa immediately on mentioning powerful entities. You can talk about Nocticula since she's already been, foreshadowed, but no new ones until Asmodia and I have time to discuss this in more depth. So back on the topic of Nocticula, Meritzel says, she's called the Queen of the Succubi, where succubi are an incredibly high-splendor demon whose touch will drain your life energy until you die. They feed on people by convincing them to let them do it. Can they convince anybody of that, or like, one person out of 30 who maybe wanted to move on to the afterlife anyways? Are they picky on who they try this on, or just literally walk up to a random person and get a 90% success rate? I know before we went up to the world wound, we were warned just to not listen to anything they were saying and flee immediately if killing them was not available as an option. But I don't know what success rate that corresponds to. In the scenario you described, locked in a room, have all day to convince the person with the key to let them out, but instead of losing money, it's that they'll energy drain you to death and you know it. I'd expect they could talk their way past a majority of random people. Not 90%, though. And mind that Galarian's random people are very stupid by Dathalani standards. Well, maybe you'd need a higher-powered succubus to be worth trying on me at all. But I am not actually any less curious now. I guess if at some point I wanted to spend 5,000 gold pieces on it so I could be raised afterwards if I lost. But I was mostly hoping that there'd maybe be some government splendor augment who trains high-value targets in splendor resistance and gets supervised about that by a devil or something. Sounds like the sort of thrilling job that might really exist and is worth asking about. That seems rather deliciously reckless of him, but she's not going to argue further. Gregoria is. Why? What are you expecting to learn from this? 50%. Let's test this before Nocticula, or somebody else with overwhelming splendor actually shows up targeting me. 50%. Can I go through the transcript afterwards more slowly and figure out which invalid steps of reasoning they were able to persuade me about secretly 100%? It just sounds incredibly interesting. But... If something is widely considered kind of a bad idea and might go wrong, you could just not do it. Maybe you could, Meritzel says. I bet Ioni couldn't, if it was really intellectually interesting and Carissa couldn't, if it involved whatever the fuck personality trait has her sleeping with the two most powerful people in the world. And you couldn't, if it involved mildly impressing someone. Alter Meritzel smiles cheerfully back at Carissa. Indeed. To be clear here, Gregoria... The thing I was contemplating doing was having this hypothetical government splendor augment take a run at me under controlled conditions, not doing the thing with the succubus anytime soon. 
Somebody bit me at lunchtime or dinnertime to see if I can make any headway about recounting one of the short stories from a reckless investor, Meals for Continuity. Uh, Meals for is someone from a relatively primitive planet at Dathelan's tech level, who would otherwise have died the true death but gets rescued by aliens because it's only legal for them to do that if you're otherwise going to die for real and he gets out among the stars and tries to sell some Dathilani fiction there, and a defecting investment group tries to steal his copyright on the fiction, but Mialsvor manages to turn the tables on them and take control of that entire investment group, and then he goes around from star to star investing in alien companies and having all sorts of fascinating adventures where he has to stop his investments from going wrong. The reason I mention this is that reckless investor Mialsvor is considered one of the best examples in Dathilani fiction of an author managing to depict an incredibly persuasive character who has to do the equivalent of passing the keeper test, talk his way out of holding cells, and so on. So maybe if I can remember the dialogue closely enough, I can retell one of the short stories and have that convey something. This sounds more and more implausible the longer I talk about it, but may be worth trying just to see how badly I fail. I'd definitely like to hear you try. Peranza says and smiles, and I'll be merciful if you fail. This she can do. It seems like a fine note on which to go to lunch. PL timestamp, day 10, 8, noon. So, have you seen a succubus, Carissa? Says Tanya at lunch. They decided they have more conversations among themselves rather than waiting for Keltham in Alter Cheliax, and they don't want to transition on him all at once, but can nudge a bit in that direction. I have seen the bodies. They don't tend to join a big rush of demons, much likelier to try to sneak through the wards on their own and venture off to wreak havoc, so it's the patrols that usually get them. Keltham has selected Flirt with Yaisa as his romantic option for the day. Yaisa will at the slightest excuse cuddle up against him and look adoringly up at him. You know, you can have more fun with a girl who isn't on your highly urgent, very important government project to transform the world. That's one alternate conception of how flirting works, sure. More fun than Carissa sounds like a difficult and dangerous sales pitch, but I'm not stopping you from trying to pitch it or deliver. Specifics? How interesting should I be assuming that your sex life is? Like, should I be trying to beat it? for interestingness by suggesting interesting applications of sex toys to the problem of I want to spend the entire day gone doing other things but also want you to be constantly tormented? Or should I be trying to beat it for interestingness by providing a price list for scrolls of polymorph to species with completely different genitalia? First one, how about if we pause and take this conversation upstairs? There's a more private room with a nice ocean view. As you wish says Yaisa, and looks down so she can peek up through her eyelashes at him. Gregoria does some calculation about how good Alter Gregoria would be at not glaring, and decides on glaring. Keltham is not particularly paying attention to Gregoria right now. The Keltham seduction room, Keltham does not know it to be called this, but would not consider it suspicious if he knew, still has a lovely ocean view, even with there being a light drizzle going on out there. Keltham's not really paying much attention to the lovely ocean view either. He has never been seduced quite this directly before. Resume, he says. Okay, Asmodia, talk to me about saying the names of entities we do not want involved in our lives, on the assumption tropes are real. 
I'm going to try that, but then, I propose, this entire conversation gets copied to the Most High, who is either very happy about my progress or sends it back with a lot of red underlining. I mark that I wouldn't even have suggested that, if not on a low punishment regimen. I'm being punished in accordance with ordinary Asmodean law, and that has not actually been an impairing degree of punishment, because that does not serve Asmodeus either. But noted, and we should speak privately, so that if we are erring terribly, we minimize how far the error spreads. And we can avoid actually naming any entities while we discuss. Acknowledged. So, I think one way of looking at this is that we can think in terms of this normal effect that our actions have, and then a second effect that they have through making universes exist or not exist, or maybe making Golarians get or not get Keltham's. And Keltham's law is later going to contradict me about that, because law isn't the sort of thing that should have normal effects and second effects, it'll just be about effects, somehow. But we don't have that law, and I don't know how to think about it that way, yet. If there's just one Keltham who has to be somewhere, and just one Golarian who gets him, and all the other ones don't exist, then I think we can not talk about demon lords in order to not have them appear. Or, no, maybe that choice is like having it retroactively be the case, that we don't exist and this world isn't here. Except, it's not like we blink out of existence or anything, it's that instead, there's always all along been some Asmodia and some Sevar who arrived at a decision more convenient to the tropes. And we're having this conversation after it was all decided. But that conversation has its effects before it was all decided. So we have to pretend it hasn't been decided yet. Because where the conversation matters, it wasn't. This is so much not what the actual law is going to sound like. I can already tell. The law isn't going to be about, do you look at it this way, go look at it that way. There's just going to be one unifying principle that treats all the numbers the same way. But I don't know what that principle is, and instead I have to try to work with ideas, words, and hope they end up corresponding to true law fragments. But if I had to guess at one of those fragments, maybe it would be something like, if you imagine that the tropes are about to start over and do this all again, and we're getting to advise the Savars and Asmodias inside the worlds, the tropes are selecting from, what do we tell them to do? And then the answer to that will have to be the same as the answer to what that law says we should actually do right now. If the number of Kelthams changes depending on what the Asmodias and Severs do, I think we advise them to go ahead and talk naturally about powerful beings they don't want showing up. Because in worlds where the tropes wanted to make a demon lord show up with a warning, our telling the Asmodias and Sevars never to mention them, means those worlds don't get Kelthams. I'm glad my world got a Keltham, and I expect you're even more so. If there's one Keltham or a fixed number, I can't actually figure it out. It seems like this weird twisty sideways thing. Pause to get a cunning on me. Carissa gestures for someone to do that. Helpful for me to speculate off what you said or no. I would take any help whatsoever at this point, yes. If there's a fixed number of Kelthams and the tropes allocate them to the set of Galarians that produce the most interesting stories, then trying to be interesting on purpose is just competing with other worlds like us, and we shouldn't. 
If there's a fixed number of Keltham's and the tropes allocate them to the set of worlds which aren't necessarily Galerion that produce the most interesting stories, then we want to be interesting. Because while I think we don't care if Keltham lands in this Galerion or a similar one, we care a lot if he lands in Galerion or some other world that's not Galerion. I guess you might also specifically care that he lands at this moment in history and not a thousand years ago or a thousand years in the future. I care less about that, I think. Arguendo. Another Kelthamism. Why wouldn't we compete with other worlds like us? Maybe whoever best serves the tropes wins their favor and there's nothing we can do to change that game. Just try to play it. Serving the tropes competes with other goals, like keeping Keltham happy and building civilization. We're better off in the world where none of the instances of us are directing effort towards trope service than the world where all of us are going full power on it, assuming we have the same odds of winning Keltham either way. So remember the question of how long it takes Cheliax's current form of government to explode after introducing Keltham to it, and whether you could find counts who weren't Ilani to replace any Alani counts who got ideas about not responding to threats. I think that logic only works if there's no Sevars who decide to serve the tropes. I don't see why I would decide differently than other Carissi. We're presumably using the same decision process, so ought to arrive at the same conclusion. So the question is whether there's somebody who is almost entirely like you, in whatever Galarians are out there, who would, faced with this situation, choose to... Maybe the Politer term would be go along with the tropes. Somebody who'd be just as seductive of Keltham, but not somebody who thinks exactly like that about tropes. Maybe. If she was slightly less inconvenienced by them and thought of them as the reason she's become so powerful. Security didn't tap Asmodia with cunning right away. They have a few third circles on staff who are doing nothing but enhancement now, though not Asmodia's requested ten such. One of those is hurried in to cast a cunning on her. Asmodia requests a moment to think for a bit after getting cunninged. Many of her thoughts are screened. Hopefully security is not detecting right now, since Keltham isn't around. But worst case, she's still got the Gorthoclec order. So the way that she thinks this actually works is that any world has something like a resistance or vulnerability to the tropes, or a difficulty check for the tropes. The decisions Savars make within the world can possibly make their world harder or easier for the tropes to manifest in. Though, obviously, the Savars may not know which choices of theirs really do that. They also don't know the tropes' strength, what amount of vulnerability they need or resistance they can overcome. You could, at the very least, if deciding not to talk about any other demon lords, which makes things more difficult for the tropes, try offsettingly to do something nice for the tropes, to keep it all in balance? Or maybe you've got to do a lot of nice things for the tropes, or somebody has to, before they can get to your universe at all. Nethys, Caden Kaelian, and her own sponsor possibly seem to think that their correct move is facilitating the tropes. But Asmodia can't tell if this is something those gods are creating the appearance of and want Sevar to believe, or something they're treating as their own hidden power and special tactic which Asmodia should not reveal. This is unfortunately not a case where four more points of intelligence immediately causes everything to become clear. Asmodia lies. I think we're at least not supposed to do anything that makes life more difficult for the tropes, unless the Most High signs off on that. 
Okay, so talking about powerful entities whose attention we don't want is fine, for now, unless they're the kind where that directly gets their attention. It does seem shaped like a problem for the Most High. After Keltham and Yaisa have tromped off to their... whatever they're about to do, Peranza leans over confidentially towards Gregoria. So is anyone else feeling incredibly annoyed that Yaisa stole Keltham and now we don't get to hear about Miles for? Peranza, you're slipping. That was Alter Peranza talking to Alter Gregoria. I mean, it's the correct direction of mistake to make, if you've got to make one. But I worry if you slip that way, maybe you'll slip the other way too. Acknowledged. Real Gregoria is also super mad about that though, Gregoria says. I don't see why we can't just learn about civilization and have like one day a week to be unabashed sluts. Because if we don't corrupt Keltham for Lord Asmodeus, he eventually figures us out. And unless an eighth circle wizard is detecting thoughts on him right then, he commits suicide before we can stop him, goes to Axis, and gets raised by Osirian. Cheliax would still win because we'd have better keepers than Osirian, keepers who eventually would get further than Keltham dared to go himself. But it would be a harder battle. Pilar is hard to argue with because of the thing where she's more pious than you. Gregoria nods and only scowls slightly. Ione honestly does not think that whole corrupt Keltham with increasingly evil sex plan is going to work, ever. But it sure is more fun than a lot of other tasks you can get assigned in Cheliax. She's on board until this all explodes, as all things do in time, praise Nethys. Report on how Yaisa's doing with Keltham, Carissa asks security, though she hasn't been urgently interrupted, so probably it's not a catastrophe. Security soon hands her a transcript of their meeting. She scans it for things that belong in Asmodia's orange or red columns. Nope, nope, nope. Does Yaisa have to be so smug? Nope. She hands it back to security. You'll have to look later. He's on his way back, but basically worked great. She adds to Asmodia quietly. Keltham is in fact on his way back, but looks busy and doesn't talk to anyone right away. Keltham instead strides over to my lol's office to check if governance had any comments on his informal proposal for an interim contract between Cheliax and Project Lawful, or any comments they might have on his articles of incorporation for Project Lawful, and pick up the papers for candidate employees to talk about with Carissa. He also briefly queries Malowal about the all-in costs if Keltham wants to straight-up employ Yaisa himself, while having her retain living quarters on Project Lawful and gives Malyol early warning on that possibility, requests that things should be configured now to allow that later. Not that their relationship advanced anything like that far, or that Yaisa has even indicated any such interest. Keltham just prefers to keep that option open for later. Comments on Keltham's informal proposal are in this folder. Comments on Keltham's proposed corporation thingy are in this smaller folder. Job candidates in this bigger folder. Yaisa's upkeep would be 6GP slash week. Yeah, pretty expensive, but they're remote out here. Keltham needs to make sure Yaisa's paid at least 12GP slash week by him. Yes, the possibility was kept open. Saver already gave Myalol the tip that Keltham might ask that about somebody, at some point, and also that the person would be Yaisa. Myalol appreciates the heads up nonetheless. Isn't it nice to have such an attentive girlfriend? 
If she actually is in the conspiracy, Keltham is kind of doomed, yo. Alright. Now Keltham is heading back to the dining hall. Things he definitely has to do today, he announces. Consider new employees with Carissa. Review and revise the contract stuff. Things he hopefully still has time to do anyways, he further announces. Teach a bit more law. Utility would be the obvious law that comes next. Get in his daily magic practice and put on another silent image show at dinner time. He'll maybe try to wing a Mialsvor short story tomorrow. Keltham's evening tonight is spoken for. So roughly, maybe one to two hours of law before dinner, if there's time. But first, Keltham wants to do the most urgent project stuff that needs to be done today rather than tomorrow. Everyone good on that? Sounds good. If you wish to support this AI reading and others like it, please visit patreon.com slash AI. Any help is appreciated. And thank you to executive producer John Doe 7776059.